Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. No, no. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. And you like to have fun, right? Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by this magnificent host. Is that... We, I got magnificent this time. Are we elevating? Yeah. Where you keep getting up higher and higher with my title. I like it. <laughs> so, we have a guest today. We have a, a super interesting guest. This so is, it's not just host and host. Yeah, this is not host and host. You cannot call me majestic when our guest is way superior to you and I in every single level. I'm, I want to point out that I said magnificent and you turned it into majestic. Oh, really? And I like the, the way you just <laughs> elevated it yourself. So anyway. Well- we have a super, super cool show today. We're going to be covering all kinds of stuff, regulation, natural supplements, overall health. This is such in our wheelhouse, and our audience is so into this stuff that this is going to be very exciting for everyone. I am pumped. I think, uh, I think it's time to get into it. Let's do it here. So today, we are honored to have Dr. Daniel Fabricant, Ph.D., he is the CEO and president of the Natural Products Association, the nation's largest and oldest trade organization representing the natural products industry. He has a PhD in pharmacognosy and serves as an adjunct professor in the Department of Medicinal Chemistry and Dietary Supplements since 2009. And Dr. Fabricant also served as the director of the Division of Dietary Supplement Programs at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which we talk about frequently, where he directed agency policy, public affairs, and regulatory action regarding regulation of the dietary supplement industry for more than three years. While he was with the agency, he successfully navigated the large government structure to revive a regulatory function that was non-existent for almost 20 years, and he has also extensively published internationally recognized for his regulatory and governmental public health expertise and natural product research. Dr. Fabricant, welcome to the Gut Check Project. Thanks, guys. And yeah, Majestic sounds pretty good. So, uh, you know, you guys you guys are off and running this morning, but thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, lots to discuss, lots going on right now in the world of natural. Without question. So you're, you're obviously in D.C., correct? Yep. I'm out of block from capital. So um, it's, a, it's a little bit, you know, as a sidebar, it's, it's an interesting time, you know, with the protests and everything else that's going on. It's a, it's a live contact sport up here now. No doubt. And then, of course, that hasn't actually really changed in the world of natural products. It's almost always been a contact sport, especially over the last uh, probably four years, I would imagine. It's really kind of heated up. Can you just kind of, before we get into some of the subject matter, just kind of describe you are the CEO of NPA, correct? Just kind of describe what NPA is, what it does, and how the consumers benefit from an organization like yours. Sure, Eric. We're um, 
we've been around since 1936. We're a trade association. People go, okay, well, what's that? So our role is really to make sure the industry gets a fair shake from government. And that's, you know, the, all three branches. We all remember the uh, schoolhouse rock of just a bill on Capitol Hill, but it's not just Capitol Hill. We've got to interact with the executive branch agencies, FDA and FTC, you know, the usual acronyms that, that, that are out to do harm, but then in the, the states as well, um, but also the judicial branch. So um, there's a lot. Of, and, and as you said, the past four years, especially on the state side, we've really had um, a lot of a lot of scrutiny. There, there have been some movements through state houses, specifically in the coastal states, that dietary supplements. The narrative is that the narrative is always that the industry is unregulated and therefore there's, un, you know, there's a lack of safety. Nothing could be further from the truth. But we're really fighting that because, um, you know, given that everything's for the Twitter sphere now, um, hey, who doesn't want to? Hey, if, if, who doesn't want to protect the children? If you, uh, you know, if you allow these products in the market, you're not protecting the children and therefore. So it, it's really gotten very, um, you know, the industry always got a lot of attention from the press, but it's really gotten very, very pointed over the past four years. And some folks have really tried to make their political campaigns about attacking our industry, which is which is unfortunate. Um, but it's not just the states uh, here in D.C. We've had some bad proposals. We had a proposal for effectively pre-market approval last year from Senator Durbin, who he's been coming after us for 20 years. And if you know him, he's dogged. He's not going to stop. So uh, we'll expect something from him again soon. But the other side of it is we've also had some regulatory, um, if you will, malfeasance, things like uh, CBD have, uh, you know, the government really slowed that to a crawl. And then um, we had to sue FDA on NAC uh, two years ago to get that back on the market. Now we're having a repeat pattern with NMN, um, which is effectively a form of vitamin B3. And you go, wait a second, the government's spending time on telling people they can't have a better form of vitamin B3. So there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot to unpack, but the, the short story is uh, the government's kind of been clear that they think their role is to limit um, the inventions, limit the science, limit uh, new products coming to market, new ideas. Um, and so that's uh, anytime you see that, I think with an industry, you're in for a fight. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, specifically someone, you mentioned him, but uh, uh, Dick Durbin, what is the motivation behind someone like a legislator to basically put the crosshairs on natural products? What, 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 what would drive someone to be motivated to do that? There's a few, but ultimately it comes down to votes. I, I think what happened, what's happening in D.C., and this is kind of the inside baseball and folks, you know, you guys are lucky. You know, being outside the Beltway right now is is a gift. Uh, being inside the Beltway is a bit of a curse. We really, unfortunately, in the Beltway have become so, I don't know, jaded that you're really seeing right now, I, I think broadly in America, you're seeing um, the folks who run businesses versus the folks who sue businesses. And that seems to be more the political party system than anything, right? And so, um, and it happens on both sides. You have some Democrats that are pro-business, you have some uh, Republicans that are pro-trial lawyer. So uh, it goes both sides, but, but I think that's a large part of it is he does, he's playing to his base somewhat. And he also got, when he was in the state house in Illinois, uh, Senator Durbin, Illinois was actually the first state to go after ephedra. And so he got a lot of news on that in the press going back to his days in Springfield, Illinois. Um, so yeah, it's kind of come full circle. He's always been able to get into the news about it. And, um, I think if it's, um, if it works for him, he's going to keep, uh, he's going to keep doing it. So that, that's a big part of it. It is part of his history, if you will, his makeup is coming after the industry. Well, it's kind of interesting that you brought up ephedra because the, <laughs> the, the result of ephedra was, I mean, we could see a measurable, uh, probably, I guess a problem for people that were overdosing on it. It caused issues like that. But you just said that you were talking about various forms of vitamin D, NMN. 
I, to my knowledge, there's not a serious side effect nor pandemic or, or issue of people overdosing on that. What would motivate the, the legislature or legislators to go after something like that? Right, right. And, and it's more the regulators, but the legislators kind of empower them. I think it's really this idea of control of the industry. If you listen to the talking points, it's, it's always the industry's grown too large. And it's like, well, wait a second, that's not there. As regulators or as legislators, they're not supposed to call balls and strikes on that, right? They set up a legal system, a regulatory system. And if somebody runs afoul of that, if they make false claims or they make unsafe products, great, the tools are there to act. Uh, there's nothing in the law about, hey, um, you know, this industry wants to spend money on research and develop new products and new ideas, and therefore it needs to be limited because that might interfere with whether it's pharma IP or some other, you know, that, that's, that really seems to be, at least on NMN and NAC, it seems to be very heavily driven from protecting pharma IP. There's a part of law, not to get too nerdy, but I am in D.C., so I'll apologize in advance. Uh, you know, there's a part of law that allows FDA, and, and when the laws were written on Deshae, uh really that natural products can walk in both sides. They can walk on the drug side, which is probably going to make a claim that deals with the disease and going to be at a much higher dose, as well as something that's available as a dietary supplement or as a food, which is probably going to be at a lower dose and isn't going to make a disease claim, but rather a structure function claim. Um, the agency has never used that part of the law. And that's, we're going on 30 years now. And so that kind of tells you something, right? There's a pattern in practice that they really don't want to see, and, and their efforts before Deshaies were to limit the industry, to limit the number of ingredients that can be mm -hmm. used and new types of products can be developed. And, and, and this, you know, this is important, especially for gut check. Um, we've seen this on, it's not just NMN and it's not just NAC or CBD and some other things. We've seen this kind of language being used from the agency on things like live microbials, probiotics, right? Which is, you know, you go, wait a second, this is one of our greatest areas of growth across medicine. And the agency's going, well, you know, a particular bacterial strain may not have been uh, in the diet or people didn't eat it for you know, eat that particular food for that bacterial strain. Therefore, it's not in the diet. It's like, well, wait a second, people were exposed to it. So how, how do we how do we call balls and strikes on that? These are natural products. And so um, it, it's there's got to be the safety controls in place. We don't argue that. But but the notion that, OK, if someone does the safety work and yet um they should be denied from the marketplace, even though it's a natural product as a food or a dietary supplement just seems to be, it seems to be at odds of what Americans want. Can I ask you a question regarding that? So what's happened in our space is that there was, there was a lot of research going on on fecal microbial transplant. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's taking poop from one person, putting it into another. And we're seeing, you know, there's animal models. There's all kinds of exciting stuff going on with it. Lots of different issues. And then I went to the American College of Gastroenterology meeting last year, and there was this big booth. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the pharma company that was there, and they're so excited because now they're going to come out with this new space. They had the FDA allow them to plant a flag into human biologics is what it's called, I believe. So the, the, this drug comes out, which is essentially a fecal microbial transplant, and now a new company has come out with spore biotics in the same space. And that I'm curious how it went from its poop to somehow planting a flag and then closing off any research that can be done there now. So how does right. that work? There's a few ways. I mean, it, it generally, okay, there's always the, the IP part is, you know, you have, if you have a branded ingredient or a branded 
drug or investigational new drug, you, you have some protection there to keep people out of the market. But that's specific really to the drug and biological space. So it's weird, though. You're right, because it's like this is someone's I mean, it, it is natural. Uh, I don't think it necessarily fits the definition of food, but it is naturally occurring and your body does produce it. I mean, these you know, the bacteria came from the gut, um, you know, so the really the argument from the agency is because it's being used to treat that's really the wall they'll use but i I think taking that out right so if we're not talking about treatment but you also have seen non-treatment endpoints with fecal transplants right we've seen athletes using it we've seen you know things like that for performance enhancement those sorts of uh, intense if you will are more fitting i think in the food dietary supplement space not taking the route of administration into consideration but one of the projects we worked on, and you'll find this interesting, was actually from a uh, bacterium, a probiotic bacterium from um, from breast tissue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the agency, on a response to one of our member companies, said, "Well, that can't be a food." And it's like, okay, I get it that people don't eat breast tissue. However, when you know an infant is nursing, they're exposed to this bacterium. So how is it not, you know? So so I think they really make it so nuanced. Um, uh, Dr. Brown, that, that it's, it makes it very tough for, you know, really anybody without those deep pharma roots to play. And I think that's a big part of it is, you know, what's the intent? If the intent's to treat, okay, it's, it's a drug or biologic, but there's all these other health endpoints, health and wellness endpoints that kind of get the door slammed in their face uh, based on a technicality. Uh, and so I think you're seeing more of that, not less of that. But the research community is looking for a lot of different ways to get people um, really um, exposed to these things, if you will. Just for clarity, we've mentioned it a few times, but if you're wondering what IP is, it's intellectual property. And that's basically what someone's going to hang on to so they can force patents or just basically protect their ideas and then obviously market around it. But I think what you've really exposed is that that's really probably the root of it is there's lots of money in lobbying through uh, the pharma industry and pharmaceutical companies. And that's really what they value is the IP. And so, and, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically what you've illustrated is something that Ken, have, Ken and I have said in the past, and that is something that exists naturally is usually viewed as something that should be available for everyone to use, to repackage, to, to distribute. Um, but it's not intellectual property because it exists naturally, unless it's combined yeah. with something. However, it seems like that oftentimes, uh, kind of like what Ken just described with uh, FMT and then suddenly finding this sporobiotic, they want to take the small isolated thing, which is still technically naturally occurring, but then build a wall around it. Yeah. And how is that so successful? And could that type of protection ever be undone? I mean, I, I saw it uh, in just, just a small example. I don't want to go very far, but melatonin when it was seen as something that could allow people to go to sleep or keep them asleep and whether or not it's effective is irrelevant that's what people thought was stimulating melatonin receptors but then suddenly i think it was back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s rosarum was released and basically it was just melatonin isolate and it was supposed to be 14 times more potent than just regular melatonin and in the end it really didn't work that much better but they were able to wall off this opportunity to just cash in and get uh, uh, physicians to send scripts. And in the end, it really was just money. It didn't deliver more sleep. It's not even really around anymore to my knowledge. So what can... Well, even beyond that, it it caused 
really bad well not really bad but it caused significant side effects like there Correct. was 25 percent of the people were having severe nausea and vomiting and so their drug reps were coming to my office saying you need to you know you should consider this for your patients i'm like why would i give something that is actually causing more side effects than the larger molecule that we know already works and it's safe and so it made no sense to me and it was just bothersome and we're going to stop this particular podcast for a special invitation. This invitation is to join the Gut Check Project Raw Locals community. We all are tired of the bullshit where we turn for great information, who we can trust, and essentially, we want to put a stop to that. There's a lot of bullshit out there, and I know about that because I'm a butt doctor. We're here to build this community to bring trust back to you. There is a lot of shit out there. There's a lot of stuff being censored, and it stops here with our community. And I'm a gas passer, which means I put this guy's patience to sleep. I know that you don't want to be filled up with any hot air. Ultimately, we want you to connect with us. Ask us questions. Let's build a community around trust. No more bullshit. So if you're watching or listening on Rumble, click that red join button in the bottom right over here, and that will take you directly to GCP Raw. We're super excited for you to join. I mean, seriously, it's going to be pretty cool. It is going to be, dude, it is going to be cool, but it's hot as hell in here right now. Are we done? Well, Should we just walk that's, off? Paul, that's it. No, and this is the biggest, this is the biggest issue for the industry right now is, um, you know, and we saw it on NAC where NAC was, I mean, it's been in the diet and, and we had, we had actual catalogs. Uh, can, can, you, can you tell everybody NAC, what NAC yeah, is? Real sorry, N-acetylcysteine, it's an amino acid. Now it was approved as a drug way back in the sixties for um, basically as an inhaler opening the bronchi. And since then, at least on the pharmaceutical side, it was used as something to help um, help your liver process mushroom poisoning. Mushroom poisoning. However, um, because it works well on the liver, it stimulates uh, you know really your liver function to you know glutathione or remove toxins. Um, it, it's been in the supplement or natural health space since probably the '80s. Uh, we had catalogs going back to the '90s from one of our leading manufacturer brands that you know we gave that to the agency. Going wait before there was even a dietary supplement category, it was sold in capsules. Looked you know they couldn't call it a dietary supplement, looked like the dietary supplement. But uh, we were told in 2020 that no, that's not a dietary ingredient because of these defunct um, drug approvals. And you know, going back to the 60s, and you go wait a second, what does that have to do with, you know, the way people have been using it safely for 30 plus years? Um, so yeah, it's not even necessarily the pharma companies that are pushing for this sort of blockade. It's really FDA kind of taking it amongst themselves to go, wait a second, we read the law this way and this way only. And there, you know, there should be no, there, you know, there's a wall, like I said, there's a wall between what drugs can say and what foods or dietary supplements can say. There's a clear wall there. Mm -hmm. The dosage usually establishes a wall as well. Um, but I think to your point, and we're seeing it, you know, probably the big, biggest example we've seen is we saw the drug approval for CBD cannabidiol, right? And, and that drug works wonders for kids that have, you know, seizure syndromes and things like that, that they have to take it. It seems to work better than things like Dilantin that are really harsh, um, but it's at a very high dose and it's, you know, it's used specifically, you know, really when these things kind of uh, are 
present. Um, it's not like an all the time use. And so, whereas folks also have used CBD and there's been some good studies on CBD at a lower dose, much lower dose for sleep or for occasional jitters or things like that. But there's really been just this blockade from FDA going, oh, we don't know what to do. Uh, it's it's all confusing. And it's like, well, wait a second, you're the FDA. How the hell is it confusing? You know, you approve the drug. You have a pretty good understanding of the pharmacology at both a higher dose and a lower dose. But yet, you know, it, and the science is out there that lower doses, you don't see the side effects. You don't see. And yet the answer, you know, it's it's like a game of Jeopardy where the board is filled. It's just no. Every every column on the board is no. Uh, it doesn't matter. And so and it's not just um, again, it's broader um, and, and we can get into the details. And this goes into the NMN story, too. Let me ask you this with so CBD is a, a really good example of the FDA inactivity. And yet, then when they go after something like NAC, like what, which windmills does the FDA decide to tilt at? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And having been there, I think it was very different. Um, I, I view the agency, and, and I think if you ask most Americans and most of your, you know, most of your listeners, um, the most, what do we want from FDA? We want them to inspect facilities and test products at the ports, right? Like that's what we want. We don't want, you know, you want to know they've gone in a facility and there's no animal droppings that they're making things to GMP, right? Like that's everybody wants that, um, and, and that's a great function they provide, but. As they kind of get out of, you know, when they said even with NAC, they said, well, there's no adverse events. There's no public health issue. So it's like, well, you're a public health agency. So why are we spending all this time on this versus finding a way to get to a space where, OK, there could be a drug and um, but there can also be a food and a supplement. Um, and that doesn't seem to be their their focus. Their focus seems to be, nope. Um, if we do that somehow, there's going to be this rash of bodies in the streets, which Nothing could be further from the truth. And, and then literally as soon as we dropped our lawsuit on them uh, from NAC, because we, you know, we sued them here in the Eastern District of Maryland, uh, which is effectively their district. A lot of the you know, government agencies are out in that part of Maryland. Um, so, you know, we, we got to a resolution where they wrote a regulation for the first time saying that, OK, it could be both. Uh, or not a regulation, but a guidance. We want them to write a regulation, but couldn't force that through the courts. And so at that point, you know, our, our members were happy. It came back to market, went back on Amazon, uh, uh, to your point, Dr. Brown, where, you know, you could buy it again on Amazon. Um, and then right after we saw the same thing with NMN, and we're still going through that with NMN, where um, NMN is, uh, is a form of niacin, um, form of vitamin B3. Um, and NMN is a more interesting case, though, because you have an active... Um, opponent in a company called uh, Metro Biotech, which is claiming to de be developing NMN as a drug. But I think they're more just really keeping people from the marketplace. And, you know, it's funny, one of the principles of Metro Biotech is David Sinclair, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with, mm -hmm. some of your listeners are familiar with, and he's been promoting NMN use as a supplement for years. And then all of a sudden he goes, well, it's not a supplement anymore. So there's this kind of uh, these gamesmanship type issues going on with this as well, where uh, it's really just an odd it, it's just an odd set of optics that, you know, FDA allowed NMN as an NDI, NDI's new dietary ingredient notification. Um, they signed off on it. Uh, the industry created a market based on that. And then a year later, then they don't have the statutory authority to do it. FDA. They said, nope, we got new information. It's a drug. Bye. And so here we are. It seems like all they did is just refile it and call it MIB 626. Yeah. They just renamed it? 
Yeah, well, that, that's the interesting part, right? So they went into, so the trigger for the exclusion, the drug exclusion is the IND plus a substantial clinical trial. So there was no drug substantial clinical trial. And if you go, and we've actually got the, and I'm happy to send this to you guys. I don't know if it's worthwhile putting on your site, sure. but we have the side side. We have the, you know, we went, we used the old Wayback machine and the initial clinical trial filing was on a dietary supplement for NMN. And then that was changed two years later, right? Out, out in the open, it was changed to say, to remove the word dietary supplement. So that was stricken everywhere. And we actually have the red line and then replace it with MIB 626. So you're 100% right, Dr. Brown, where they just went, hey, no one will notice. We'll just, you know, kind of clean this up over <laughs> here. And, and you know, it, that's unfortunate because I think so many people have, um, you know, they, they, there really seems to be such a community around NMN and, and kind of the anti-aging movement. And that's great. Uh, I think it's concerning that, that just with a company that really, I mean, Metro Biotech isn't going to develop NMN into a blockbuster drug um, for, you know, a lot of the patentability reasons because it is natural. And so they're very limited in what they could patent. And so they're just making it difficult for, for our industry to operate, which is, you know, and FDA seems to want to help them in that pursuit. Well, that, that's something that I wanted to highlight right there. You said difficult for the industry because really what that turns into is limited access for the consumer. That's really yeah. what it does. It, it doesn't really matter which company whether it's one of the trusted uh, brands that's large like now or anyone else, yep. they if they want to produce NAC, NMN, or who knows what's next, or vitamin D, uh, and uh, make it available to everyone to purchase at their for their own decision making, they're basically taking away that ability to do that. And yep. how, how long were you at FDA? Was you, was it? I know you were the director on the food side for three years. Yep. Uh, a little over three years. So I started in January of 2011 and I left in um, uh, April, May of 2014. Well, I like how so, you said that that you, that the idea behind what we want from the FDA is yeah. essentially to inspect food that comes in, make certain that, uh, uh, you know, general uh, manufacturing practices are clean and all of that makes sense. It that But it's just so weird how this administrative state body which basically is, is this cushion between our legislators who we elect and the judicial system. And then suddenly it's just people who are placed to go and make these decisions. And you, you know, the F and FDA is for food and for the same, for the same reason that they're denying the ability to produce. And you said it glutathione, the one of the absolute best antioxidants that you can have circulating that you would get from taking NAC they want to fight your ability to acquire that, yet they have no problem pumping in seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, and other things like that that are system, uh, uh, systemically inflammatory. What What sure. is the mindset there? You were in FDA. What, what is that? You know, there's some, there's some aggravation, I think, from the agency, at least when I was there. There was some kind of older... Uh, some of the, the older guard uh, were upset with Deshaies. They felt like it gutted them, which it didn't. But again, I think that there's there's some of that. Um, I, I think there's some folks that feel like government just knows better. And, you know, it, it, but, but to your point, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, you know, look, I, I always, uh, you know, politics are local, right? And so um, I always go back to the example. I forgot who said, I think it was James Carville, who's like, you know, um, did the guy fix your potholes? Right. Like that's, you know, like, like yeah. that's you know, yeah. like start there, like be good at that. But unfortunately we've given so much land, but it's weird, right? You look at the supplement space and we've got the GMPs seem to be, you know, 
that seems to be really, I'm not saying it's perfect by the agency, but it's out there and it's effective. They're very active on claims. If someone says, hey, this cures cancer, okay, they're going to go and, and shut that down, right? Um, you've got the same adverse event reporting system that you have for drugs and over-the-counter drugs for dietary supplements, which, you know, whenever people go, oh, well, dietary supplements aren't regulated, it's like, well, no, they have the exact same post-market surveillance as everything else at FDA. So, and it's this, it's this innovation piece, right? This NDI piece. And, and it's also on the food side, on the grass side, where it's been this black box for at least 30 years, if not longer, where it's like, we try to innovate. I mean, what, so the food side, like, like what you said, Eric, you know, there's a campaign in town of get the F out of FDA. People want a single food agency. So oh, wow. I think it's interesting, but you're right. It's not bad. Um, we'll get you guys the t-shirts. Uh, that'd be good. <laughs> That's right. The F out of but the, the, it's like, okay, so the food dietary supplement industry can't innovate. Pharma's the only one that can innovate. Yeah. Like human health is stagnant, right? Like we can't go, Hey, um, we have a better form of, uh, of niacin in NMN. We, you know, we, we want it and yet we can't innovate. It's interesting. You brought up vitamin D because actually that's a fight that's starting to emerge. Why do you think the fight is emerging now in particular? Cause vitamin D over the last three years has been talked about a lot. I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. So we had, we had a member uh, contract manufacturers working with a large ingredient supplier that, um, wanted to start looking at 25 hydroxy vitamin D because there's some evidence that it gets, you know, it's the storage form, right? You, you take vitamin D3 and then in the liver, it gets hydroxylated and, and you store it. Now they interconvert D3 and 25 hydroxy D interconvert. But the thinking is that there's some evidence that 25 hydroxy D may be better for folks who don't have great vitamin D status, folks that live in the North, folks that don't have a diet with vitamin D. So there, there's some, some preliminary evidence that may be a better form. The fact that it was once upon a time, again, someone submitted an IND on it long, long time ago because the university made them do a study because they were comparing D3 status to 25 hydroxy D status in infants. So a university probably made them do an IND. And so therefore now can't develop it. And you go, huh? It's still vitamin D we're talking about. And the agency's arguments are, well, yeah, but vitamin D in the diet has always been D2 or D3. It hasn't been this. And it's like, no, it appears in the diet. But then the agency goes, well, wait a second. But nobody ever ate the product for 25-hydroxy-D. They ate it for vitamin D or D2. And you go, this makes no sense, right? Like, you're literally just coming up with silly ways. In the body, it's vitamin D. It's D, you know, it, it interconverts D3 and the hydroxyl. But um, yeah, this is the sort of thing you're dealing with where, and I think to your point, Dr. Brown, it's because- there's so much interest, right? We saw it during the pandemic. That was one of the biggest cohorts for comorbidity was D status, right? The obesity, D status. These were the sorts of things uh, that, that we saw. And you go, huh, um, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to get the tinfoil hat and the black helicopters just yet, but there certainly seems to be a pattern in practice, right? Certainly a pattern. Quick question for you. When you, you said that they, the university probably made them file an IND, investigational new drug, and then there's also something, you know, an NDI, um, yep. a new dietary ingredient. It sounds like that should have been an NDI, not an IND. Yeah, but for clinical protection so often, like, you know, you have this whole, you know, every university, every uh, investigational review board, right? Uh, which, you know, I, I know you, you've dealt with a lot in, in your, you know, in, in, in previous lives. Um, you know, when you try to do a clinical study, a lot of times universities, because they don't necessarily have folks that are 
that realize, well, hey, we're not really looking at a new drug. We're looking at a nutrient, but they go, no, no, no. It's being, you know, we're taking serum. We're looking at pharmacokinetics. We're look, we've got to have an IND in place or we're not protecting our subjects ethically. This happens often. Um, so it, it's a weird thing uh, that, that you have, um, you know, a lot of times it's like if you want to do research on a nutrient um, to do so, you've got to get an IND. And it's like, well, that could be the very thing that blocks someone from the market. But so it, it's... It's crazy. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely because that's gonna that's gonna be prohibitive of anybody that doesn't have the deep pockets that pharma has. Right, and, and you look at what's the intent of the law. The intent of the law isn't to stop things from coming to the market. It, it was, I, you know, I think when they wrote that part of the Shea, it was, hey, something that was developed as a cancer drug, you know, shouldn't be then a supplement. I think most people, you know, there's a logic to that, right? Like that's not really where we are, but you know, if it's a natural component, if it fits the definition, if it's a, you know, botanical, a vitamin, a mineral, amino acid, a probiotic, um, and just because there's an IND doesn't mean that it should be prohibited from being a supplement or food forever. I think that that's completely backwards, um, but that's the FDA we have right now. Yeah. This is a, I can just imagine right now somebody is watching this because we sort of just jumped right into this and yeah. they're probably going, wow, this um, politician guy seems really smart. So one thing, uh, we, when I deal with my colleagues, especially in the supplement space, and I'm talking about traditionally trained gastroenterologists, I immediately am, well, get pushed back. Oh, that's all. It doesn't work. It's uh, There's no research on it. And we know that most you know, pharmaceutical agents come from plants originally somewhere there. Yep. So you yep. started out as a chemist. I just want to give a little background on you because this is really cool. And had I known about this field, I probably would have gone into it, started out as a chemist, and then you got a PhD in pharmacognosy. Can you just give that run up your history leading up to that? Sure. Sure. I got, I was very fortunate. I got to work for, uh, to get my PhD under a guy named Norman Farnsworth and Dr. Farnsworth, um, He's probably the most published um, pharmacognosist, if you will, in the world. Uh, God rest his soul. He passed away about 10 years ago. Um, but it was the development of drugs from natural products. Uh, probably 80% of our drugs are, you know, either from natural products or semi-synthesis. People added a functional group to them to make them more effective or to extend their patent life. Uh, you know, we come full circle. But um, the program I was in, and University of Illinois Chicago was uh, really world renowned for developing and looking at uh, cancer drugs from natural products. Mm -hmm. uh, most of our cancer drugs, things like vinblastine, vincristine, that are still used today for leukemia, were discovered in the 60s from a botanical. Uh, so, uh, you know, things like Taxol, uh, which actually, you know, got famous because of Lance Armstrong used, you know, he used it when he had testicular cancer. Uh, then, he, you know, everything with Lance got less famous, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, these are all natural product drugs. So some of our greatest developments in the past, uh, you know, 30, 40 years uh, were from natural product drugs. And it's come full circle. Uh, every major uh, pharma house had a natural products program. A lot of them scaled back in the 90s and early 2000s. And, and it's kind of back again because now we've mapped the human genome. And, and they're seeing that it may be responsive. You know, it's interesting to see the, the high tech biological side go to kind of, if you will, the crude side where it's like, you have all these molecules from nature, uh, things like quinine, quinine, right, has become more popular than ever because malaria is on the rise and they're going, 
you know, they've tried all these different drugs and nothing seems to work as well as, is is the, you know, all the different quinines. So it's like, um, but they're finding the molecular targets and those sorts of things. So it's getting new life. But yeah, my background is, it was looking for, you know, pharmacological targets from, from natural products. I, uh, it's interesting though. I started in the, the drug, the drug side. And then my advisor got in 1999, uh, NIH had a center grants to look at botanicals. And so we got one of the first center grants and we looked at women's health. So I actually, we had a large clinical study on the plant black cohosh, you might've heard of it, uh, wow. which works very well on hot flashes. And so that was uh, my dissertation was the clinical piece, but also looking for new molecules uh, within black cohosh that affected the uh, really that uh, hypothalamic center that deals with hot flashes. So it was, it was pretty cool stuff. Uh, but then, uh, you know, one of the things in being involved in that center was, um, you know, Dr. Farnsworth was, he was like, he would send me to DC every couple of months because we had to get, we had to get like IRB approval. We had to get INDs. So I got into that kind of uh, naturally, if you will, pardon the pun. Well, you brought up something that I've, I've, I, uh, has always piqued my interest on why there's such a difference. So you said the, um, the, I'm trying to word this correctly. You said the structure function earlier when we were talking about talking about natural pro, uh, products is what we can discuss stateside. And you just had a discussion about how pharma companies used to have more robust investigations, and now they're trying to return back to doing natural things. But the the striking difference is is that they can take structure function. And because they're a pharma company, they can assign it to a disease. And then, and then, but up in Canada, uh, I don't agree with everything Canada health does, but I will (laughs) give them some, some, uh, huge cred in that with our product, Autron Teal stateside, we have to talk specifically about structure function and that it could reduce bloating and different things like that. But in Canada, Autron Teal is approved openly for IBS, irritable bowel disease. Or uh, I'm yeah. sorry, irritable bowel syndrome. And what is the balance there when one one exact same product, just simply because of a border, can be far more truthful, direct to the point, and talk about what it means to the consumer versus here only navigating these waters of, uh, it kind of looks like this and it kind of does something like this. Hopefully you can kind of put these pieces together and figure it out. You always have to say occasionally, yeah. may, right. you know, all the words that we have to use. Can't say pain, must say discomfort, stuff like that. Right. No, and and people used to hate me when I was at the agency uh, because we'd give lectures and we're like, look, um, it's not person. We didn't make the rule, but like, okay, what's the difference between inflammation and immune, right? Like you, you can say supports a healthy immune system. You can't say supports a healthy inflammatory response because by at least, you know, some measure, a healthy inflammatory response means you're responding to a vector, you're responding to a disease, right? So there's that. And, and you're right, Eric. Uh, it's it's crazy when you think about we're the only, you know, there's, I don't know, over 100 sovereign nations, but I only, we're the only one that has a First Amendment the way we have it. And yet, if you do the research and it's truthful that it works for IBS, you still can't say it. You go, wait a second. How does that, you know? Um, the EU, similarly, they've got, you know, over 200 claims that are approved that you can make, you know, you can venture into that disease claim territory. Whereas here, um, you know, here there's that bright line there from FDA. Now, what makes it more troubling, I think, is there is a process to talk about risk reduction, disease prevention through the health claim or qualified health claim process. Mm-hmm. And that came online in 1990 through the Nutrition Labeling Education Act. And 
since that time, we've only had 22, 23 of those. And you go, huh? And those are things like folate, perspense, neural tube defects. But realistically, no, not we haven't been able to traverse that system. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think if anything needs an overhaul, it's that part of the system. I think structure function claims are great. Uh, they certainly communicate to the consumer. I think I think in the United States, uh, you know, and it's funny, uh, folks really rely on those. You know, it stimulates. I think that folks, you know, they see the structure function claims. They go to the research. I don't necessarily know that they go to PubMed or clinicaltrials.gov, but some do. And they go, wait a second, there's a there there. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's really kind of we're behind. Right. We're way behind. And especially for a country with the First Amendment, like, for example, you know, going back to the pandemic, we couldn't say that vitamin D was important for, uh, you know, it was one of the second, you know, second most important cohort for comorbidity. We couldn't say that it was fact. Everybody knew it. Everyone talked about it. it was in the newspapers, but you couldn't, you know, you couldn't put it on a, you know, God forbid you put it on your product, let alone put it on, you know, your Twitter or, or any of your social media. You'd be, you know, you're making a disease claim. Yeah. Lots of uh, normal uh, avenues there were kind of turned on their ear and uh, I don't, we don't have to get into it. I think everybody who's probably watching this fully probably knows what we're yeah. talking about, but yeah, it was uh, pretty annoying. Let me ask you a question. So there's this, or there was this weird category called medical food, and they were making oh, yeah. claims. And yeah. I, I was actually speaking with uh, the owner that had a medical food, and then something happened, and then suddenly it became very difficult, and I don't know what happened. Yeah, the agency kind of oscillates in and out on medical foods. The only medical foods that have really been approved to date um, have been like oral rehydration or, you know, enteric nutrition for folks with some sort of muscle wasting and things like that. They've limited it so much. It, and it's interesting, especially in the gut health space, you know, there is really good evidence for probiotics on things like ectopic dermatitis. Like, I mean, I've seen from, and, you know, not every, um, not every academic medical society supports it, but you see their research, you see it, you know, I, I look at their plenary sessions and you've got, you know, for years and years and years, people talking about this, like how well it's working for some of these, you know, immune, immune deficient type scenarios where if they get a probiotic, it, it's, it makes a drastic improvement compared to, you know, antifungals or antibiotics or any sort of other interventions. And so, that's a perfect, you know, that's like the perfect use of medical foods because it's going to be done under the care of a doctor. It's a dietary need that they're not going to get elsewhere in the diet, right? They're not going to get this specific probiotic. Um, and so you go, well, why isn't the agency looking to do something there? And I think it, it kind of, it's this, it, again, it's this, they, I think they think that should only be available in the pharma space versus like, this isn't a drug. This is something, that, you know, it's, it's in some people's diet. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just weird. But yeah, they, the agency really has cracked down on that space a lot more in the past probably 10 years on the medical food side. And it's unfortunate because I think they're not looking to innovate, whereas I think everybody, you know, the, the scientific community is, the, the industrial community is. Um, they see the need out there. Um, you know, uh, similarly, on gut health, um, one of the biggest challenges is is uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Someone has, to, especially children, yeah. they, you know, they go. They go to hospitals, they get C. diff, and really, in a lot of cases, the only thing that works are probiotics and, and you know, milk bacteria. And you go, but the agency just kind of goes, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's really not helping anybody. That's, uh, totally agree with uh, everything you just said there. Um, just a, a different idea on like a focus on what NPA does. You've mentioned a few times how y'all have had to take, uh, 
uh, FDA to court, uh, various lawsuits, et cetera. What about the other avenues where consumers are probably getting squeezed? And, and one would be through information and one would be by availability. What I mean by that is it seems like it, especially after COVID, we've shed a light on if you're the right pharma company, you're going to get whatever you want published. And uh, if you're the wrong researcher, it doesn't matter how legitimate your information is, it's not going to be published. And then the other thing is once NAC was determined that it could possibly be a drug only and shouldn't be available, suddenly a gigantic retailer like Amazon just restricts everyone's availability to it. And so now the consumer is limited from information and you've got all these publications where they've, they've got massive influence and they get to pretend as if they're equally evaluating all of the submissions. And then you've got Amazon making basically an arbitrary decision to stop the sale of something, which basically stymies not just the the producers of the product, but people's availability to acquire it. Do y'all ever go after those yeah. two industries like that? Well, we, I mean, um, you know, our role in all this is you don't get ears like this by not getting your head slammed in the mat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, that's, we fight everywhere. Um, so we fight, you know, obviously we're right on Capitol Hill. So uh, we have great relationships up here. Uh, so a lot of really good members on both sides of the aisle, really supportive of the industry. There's also some members who really don't like the industry and like to support that pharma side. So mm-hmm. we're up here on the Hill constantly trying to use every pressure point we can, whether it's to influence FDA, FTC, or the platforms. Um, it's interesting. The platforms use a lot of times third parties. We're in a battle right now, and I guess I can speak about it because I'm not going to say anything litigious. But um, I think I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of LegitScript. Uh, LegitScript yeah. advises some third party platforms. Um, and like with NMN, LegitScript has you know made a determination uh, that NMN shouldn't be available. And that's what Amazon points to um, and other platforms. Uh, well, we're digging in on that because, you know, we're we come at it from a different angle. We think that the agency made it clear that they haven't had a final decision on NMN. So why should a third party platform have a final decision? Now, it's their business. They can do what they want. But at least that discussion, that argument needs to be out in the open. To your point, exactly. It's like, look, I understand a private entity isn't necessarily bound by the same rules as, you know, we would be in terms of, you know, your constitutional rights. It's a private platform. They can somewhat do what they please. But I think it's important to get it stated that, hey, if they're going to make this decision, is this someone you want to do business with in the future? Is this, I mean, I think that that's an important part of the conversation, right? So uh, like you said, Amazon pulled it. Um, other platforms like iHerb, who's a, who's a member of ours, full disclosure, they still have it up at uh, MN. So there are places to go. But yeah, it's kind of this underbelly, these third parties that people go to. It's like, well, it's not our decision. Of course, we're just, you know, we're just a seller. We have to rely on someone else. It's really getting to who those someone else's are, right? Who are those decision yes. makers, if you will? chain, right? Who are their experts they're relying on and what are they basing their decision on? And so, um, like I said, we, we, you know, this is what we do for our members is we try to really find those pain points and get to, you know, get to some sort of resolution. We don't want everything to be a fight though. Uh, You know, unfortunately, a lot of times it takes that, um, that advantage. These battles are more about what's the old saying about the difference between perception and perspective. Right. Everyone's got their perception on NMN, but what's the perspective uh, and taking taking a step back? Is are people really, you know, are our public health agencies doing the right thing in their role? Are these third party experts doing the right thing in their role? Um, and I think that that's where we try to fight. And we also use, you know, one of the things we've got about 700 members. Uh, 
but we have retail as well as manufacturing. So one of the great things about having retail is that touch to the consumer. Uh, we get a lot of emails, a lot of grassroots, and that's really important this day and age because, you know, everyone's polling, right? As soon as a member of Congress gets elected, what are they working on? Getting reelected. So if they're getting emails from folks, they know that like if someone's willing to email, they're probably going to show up to vote. That's wild that you brought mm-hmm. a legit script. We we've we've had to deal with them uh, in the past several years ago, maybe five years ago, but uh, it's it's almost the equivalent of what emerged after COVID as the fact yeah. checker. Uh, yeah, you know you right. want you want, who 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 in the hell is the fact checker? Where are they where are they getting their validity to to run through and say that a story is or isn't worth it? Yeah, but if, if you mentioned that Amazon used legit script to make their decision when NAC was pulled, it was literally like a Saturday morning. It just yeah. went away, and it happened so fast that you're like, wait a minute, this is Amazon. Like, who is Amazon talking to that it basically pulled that lever? Yeah. No, that, that's 100% right. Um, and, and you go, also, why aren't you engaging with the industry? Like they've made, Amazon has made so much money off of the industry and continues to. I'd imagine their sales are north of a couple billion uh, for dietary supplements easily. Um, so you go, well, why aren't you engaging with groups like ours? Uh, there are, you know, while there are a lot of groups that claim to, you know, work on the space, that's great. Uh, but we are you know, the oldest and the largest in terms of number of members, at least have the conversation, at least give us an understanding as to why you're making this decision. I understand they're motivated right now because, you know, they've been under inquiry from the Department of Justice and they're always worried about the plaintiff bar and everything else. But okay, like, can't people come to a place where it's like, look, this isn't a final agency decision yet. The agency said they don't think it should be, it fits the category, but by virtue of, we had a citizen's petition in, uh, we do on NMN, the agency has been very clear that they're not taking a final stance because here's the other side. And, and having worked at the agency, I know this, and it, it's it's a bit of gamesmanship on our end. Once they render a decision on that citizen's petition, then it is a final decision, which means then we can move, you know, to our judicial rights. Right. I mean, so much of this is predicated on we've got to exhaust the administrative. We've got to exhaust the legislative and then we can get to the judicial, which, you know, bores the hell out of people. But, um, hey, it's uh, <laughs> You know, it's uh, all three branches of government and they're not always uh, working together. So that's I heard you discuss this on another podcast where the FDA uh, you know, took 180 days to say nothing on the NPA's yeah. NMN citizens petition. So they just sat and stared at it. I, I mean, you, you got, you know, the agency's attorneys get in the room and, and you know, there used to be a joke and at, uh, you know, FDA works closely with Department of Justice on any issues. And when I was at the FDA, you know, the joke is, you know, if someone sues the government or the government goes after someone, they're innocent until proven bankrupt. Right. So I think a lot of this <laughs> is so true. Though. <laughs> it is right. Uh, but a lot of this is, um, you know, they're running clock right on NAC. We caught them on their heels. I think I don't think they were prepared for the industry to sue. Our industry used to have a robust history of taking the agency to court in the 60s and 70s. That kind of went away after Deshay, and now it's back. Uh, you know, what's the old joke is, you know, suing each other just means you're going to spend more time together. Um, I think that that's, um, you know, <laughs> that's I'm, part of it. I'm it's, laughing it, for a personal reason. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And it's usually the person you want to spend the least time with, but hey, it happens that way. But, like, pharma sues the agency routinely, and to, to some uh, – to some degree, I think it's a it's it. Look, it's not perfect, and lawsuits are expensive, and I'm not. I don't mean to make it trivial, uh, but at some point, it's a lot easier if the agency goes. Wait a second, 
they're going to sue us on this. We need to maybe rethink this. We need, maybe need to come to the table with something other than no. Um, so I'm hoping that eventually that's what will, you know, transform, but we'll see. But yeah, on NMN, they sat around and they go, look, we're going to run their clock on this because they're kind of effectively daring us to take some sort of litigative action. I mean, they really are. They haven't, and very different from NAC. NAC, we saw denial of imports. We saw a lot of actions that could be really, um, for the court's purposes, construed as final agency action. Whereas once you have as an industry final agency action, okay, then you can start to exhaust your litigative rights. Uh, but they've been very good about staying out of anything that could be construed as those. So they're playing it straight down the line. Uh, and, and so we're, we're, you know, considering all options and trying to, you know, get a fit in the puzzle any we can on NMN. Because the longer, you know, they're playing a smart game. I think they learned from CBD. FDA has been confused on CBD for four years, right? Look what happened in that marketplace. That marketplace went from about $4,000 a kilo for CBD biomass to about $200 a kilo mm -hmm. CBD biomass, right? I mean, crush the marketplace by just doing nothing, mm. by basically just, you know, and keep getting the message out there going, we're confused. The American people should be confused too. And it worked. Mm. Didn't they also do something with tobacco farmers and convince them to do some hemp growing and then these oh, poor yeah. guys? Oh, no, they got they got killed. It's funny, though, you know, and, and FDA doesn't like when I say this, but the whole Delta 8 thing was created by their inaction on CBD. I mean, people figured out that, look, I had biomass and I, I dug up my tobacco. I dug up my you know, wholesale tobacco was probably about four hundred, five hundred dollars a kilo, uh, you know, going up to CBD for ingestibles, four thousand. Well, hey, that looks good initially. But then that you know felt like a rock. And so they're you know, folks were like, I got to do something with this stuff. And you know, somewhere someone figured out that, hey, if I get a caustic acid, 400 degree heat, I can turn CBD biomass into Delta 8 and sell it at head shops. And, you know, it's not as, as effective as THC, but hey, I'm skirting the law. So have at it. Um, yeah, it's kind of a crazy thing when you think about it, but it's so much of it is economic to your point. Uh, doc is they they really created the marketplace because they had farmers go, yeah, burn your tobacco land, plant hemp and there'll be a marketplace for it. And that's crazy. I get lost yeah. in, in trying to figure out whenever there's a, a, an administrative part within government. And it feels like that. And you said it early in the interview that someone felt like that it was stripping them basically of their power. Um, and yeah. when they feel that, then it, it's almost as if the, the idea of the altruistic purpose of, of a, you know, an institution, a governmental institution is completely like that's, that's what is given as the reason why an administration or a, a department needs to exist is there's all these altruistic reasons. And the moment it's created, it's how do we gain this power? What, how could that attitude ever change? Will it ever change? That's a great question. I mean, it, right. It's a public trust. that's no longer in the interest of the public. <laughs> it's no yeah. longer trust. Right. I mean, so how do you change it? Uh, a lot of it's just going to be grinding. I think, I think so much of it too, um, you know, and this is where what you guys do is critical is just getting people. I think there are always a lot, there's a lot of the, the mainstream medical community, if you will, that they're a believer in, in, in natural products. They're a believer in supplements. They use them in their practice, but I think it's always done with kind of a like, okay, I can't tell anybody this. Right. And similarly, I think, I think people who use supplements, um, a lot of times I, you know, uh, I heard this all the time when I was at the agency is, 
well, my doctor told me not to use anything. I'm going to keep using it. I'm just not going to tell them. Um, so I, I think that until that kind of goes away, and it's a commodity that 80% of the country uses. 80% of the country takes a supplement every day. Mm-hmm. 80% of the country doesn't eat an egg for breakfast every day, right? So we're talking about really a kitchen table type you know, product, a kitchen table type movement. Um, but for whatever reason, there's still kind of this um, – I don't know, naughtiness or feeling like I shouldn't be doing this because my doctor may not approve. And I think that really has to be remedied uh, before any of this gets changed. Uh, Because I think, I think trust of FDA is an all time low now for a variety of reasons, but I think specific to our industry, it's, it's never been lower. And and that's not good for anybody because God forbid there is a problem. God forbid there's something like, you know, uh, I think, I'm dating myself here, but like the Tylenol scare in the, in the eighties, if something like that were to happen, people would just be like, Oh, this is just FDA doing their nonsense again. Right. When, um, and, and something like that's always concerning um, because it is, it really should be for the public good. It should be a public trust and, and they should be looking at ways to work with the industry to innovate. Um, I think by and large, you know, of course, any industry, you know, unfortunately there are very scant few who want to take advantage and cut corners and do, do, you know, do bad things. But I think overall folks who folks who believe in this space, they want to put their money where their mouth is. Um, and they want, they want to research new products too. So why isn't there engagement on that? Uh, why is it just a black box? Um, I, I don't know how you capture their attention to get that other than get the word out and have, have really the grassroots say, Hey, FDA, your role is to really, um, is safety, uh, making sure products are safe, making sure you're inspecting and testing like we talked about. But when it comes to new, you know, new developments, um, look for a way to engage. Well, I totally agree. And I think that it's it, probably a new or a director or whomever would, would have to step in to make positive change would have to start with acknowledging that the lack of trust is self-inflicted. I mean, like these are decisions that, that they made that the public sees. And this is why uh, great representation through NPA and other organizations, either on behalf of food or what have you, I've been critical at basically keeping them honest as much as possible with, with how they, they roll out decisions. Um, and then if you compare like, uh, our FDA versus what happens just specifically with food, like in the UK, uh, Ken and I were looking at something last week. I just wanted to pull this up for instance, there was this comparison of like the ingredients allowed in, in the same types of food versus yeah. Yeah, I saw Halloween candy, um, what they allow in Halloween, like certain Halloween candies versus us. Yeah. Well, so here's, here's Quaker Oats. They, they sell both in the UK and they sell in the U S here are the ingredients for the UK's version of, uh, what is this strawberry, uh, Quaker Oats. So it's Quaker's whole grain, rolled oats, sugar, freeze dried raspberry pieces, freeze dried strawberry pieces and natural flavors. That's it. That's all there is to it. You come over to the one that's going to be available on your grocery store aisle, and it's whole grain rolled oats, sugar, creaming agent, maltodextrin, sunflower and palm oil, whey, sodium, um, a bunch of other stuff, two more paragraphs, uh, three books, uh, red 40, salt, guar gum. It just goes on forever, and it's ridiculous because this is the same company, and there are mechanisms in place. They, not all of this is just for them to save money. Somebody, there's a there's a piece of a lobby that makes some of those things available to this yep. food manufacturer, and that's why they feel compelled to do so. And I and you see that, and Ken and I talk about this quite a bit now too. Our high pressed seed oils suddenly canola oil is in everything. So yep. why does the FDA focus on 
stripping us of the availability to make decisions on our own behalf for supplements that have long been tested to be safe and available and then allow this kind of bullshit to be put into all of our food? It's a great question. I, I think that, you know, it really is this mentality that, hey, I don't think the American public is smart enough to make these decisions, right? On some level, it's 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 institutional arrogance. It's, hey, we know better versus engaging and understanding why. Um, why you know, there's a reason why people want access to natural products and supplements. Uh, because of you know some of the things you just mentioned there they they look at you know they see they see that ingredient list too and they go wait a second I, I need more fiber in my diet but I don't need you know red 40 with it um, so yeah it's it's really so it's it needs a reset and I don't think that's gonna happen I think because you've got just the, the conversations turn to power too much versus hey uh, there's an aspect, you know, the FDA mission was restated in the 90s, 97, I think, of protecting and promoting public health. Okay. I think the protecting part's pretty clear. Like we talked about, go visit the facilities, test products. Cool. But what about the promoting health? Like, yeah. where does, you know, like, where can we get to that? It's funny, too, you mentioned, because the FDA is proposing a reorganization, right? And they're proposing to do something with supplements. We're not crazy about combining them with food additives. But it's funny because... You know, they speak out of two sides of their mouth. To your point, Eric, they don't want us to say certain things on dietary supplements and the potential health benefits they can have. But FDA wants to be given an office of nutrition initiatives to reduce salt and sugar consumption. And you go, well, wait a second. So how if the mandate mean, you know, they tell us all the time, well, our mandate isn't to help promote healthy products. But then why over here? Right. It's like, so th there's this whole thing going on. And I don't even think they have the authority to tell people how to eat. I don't, you know, anywhere in the statute, not to bore, you know, please no one. I'm not a lawyer. Don't go to law school. No, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, you can't pick and choose when you're going to tell people to be healthy and what you're going to tell them to be healthy about either. It's across the board and you look at these things completely holistically or, you don't touch them at all. Uh, it's interesting. They're looking at, um, you know, some of these health, you know, defining healthy FDA is going to define healthy. And one of the, one of the points in there, you know, that, that I think rings true to what you said. So you can't say that a protein product with, you know, low fat or close to zero fat is healthy, but you can say something that, you know, if it's a food and it doesn't, you know, if, if it, doesn't have fat, you can say that's healthy. So it's like, wait a second. So a protein shake, just because it's a supplement, can't be a healthy source of protein, but something, you know, if it's just milk, let's say, low fat milk, that can. And you go, wait a second, the protein's the same, right? They're both whey protein. Like those sorts of rules, you go, this is completely arbitrary. This makes no sense. And it, it doesn't help inform consumers. It doesn't help inform Americans on making healthy choices. And, and that's where I think there's gotta be they've got to put down their arms somewhat. Uh, but I, I don't know how to make that happen other than, like I said, spending more time with them. So. <laughs> yeah. We are trying to inform and then my patients. So my hundred percent of my patients openly talk about supplements, but that's just the space that I live in. But yeah. they, um, a lot of my colleagues will, they'll come in, not talk about supplements, but they'll talk about the commercial. They just saw about a drug that's supposed to help them. Right. Right. And well, it's interesting. So I don't know if you guys saw the Wall Street Journal yesterday about Ozempic and the, the potential market there. Um, 
is, you know, I think it was north of $60 billion in two or three years for Ozempic. And you, you look at the, you know, look, I'm not going to, and who knows, my car may not work after, but, um, you know, you look at the side effects and things like that, you go, you know, we always get hit with people. There's no magic bullet for weight loss. You can't take a, you know, uh, the supplements really can't help you with weight loss. It's diet and exercise. And we go, they can help, but you need, they can help with diet and exercise. Well, now it's like, oh, you don't need diet and exercise. Just take the magic pill or magic injection. And you go, this is a problem, right? Like, I don't understand how on the one level you can go, well, you know, nothing really helps except diet and exercise and then kind of throw that out and go, well, it, you know, as long as it's not natural and it's this drug, well, then you can just throw out diet and exercise. So um, it's it's a weird time. Um, and you're really, I, I'm curious to see how kind of the Ozempic type uh, promotion and the, the generation two weight loss drugs go along with that. Cause I mean, you're seeing already, you know, some of the side effects and things like that. It's, uh, it's concerning. One of my patients got called by an attorney he, that he'd worked with before. And, um, was the, the attorney was asking him if he was having any type of severe gastroparesis and things like that. I think they're teeing up to do a class action regarding that. Yeah. I, I think we're going to see a lot of that. Cause I, I mean, you're seeing it, you know, and just the mechanism of how these things work, you go, okay, so, so, Taking a green tea supplement with diet and exercise is, is harmful, but this is okay. And you just, the message is so mixed and so convoluted that it really does diminish, um, you know, really diminish any sorts of uh, credibility uh, on these issues. Cause they do, they cut across. And at the end of the day, people want to know, and I don't have to tell you it's in your practice. People want to know what should I take? How often should I take it? How much should I take? What's a good, you know, what's good, what's bad. And it's like, the, the, the kind of dance around all of that at this point is, is getting to be a little silly. Well, the good news is that I did see something where they are now looking at doing studies on obese children with Ozempic. So that's exciting. Starting at six years old and as young as six. Scary, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but God forbid they use a, you know, God forbid they take a multivitamin because that's going to be, you know, that's going to lead them to eating disorders. Or just stop well, eating shitty food. Yeah. I mean, if you look, we, Eric and I did a podcast where we were talking. There's a graph where you can actually see that right around the late 70s, early 80s, obesity starts to increase. And then it just skyrockets and it just continues. Same time, a little bit later, uh, depression, ADHD starts going up. I mean, instead of saying take Ozempic, how about just start with one thing? Stop all the high fructose corn syrup. Just one, one thing and then just chisel your way down. Well, it's funny too. People always talk about, well, you know, people didn't know anything about nutrition then. You saw cigarette ads for expecting mothers and stuff. It's like, okay, come on, let's take the hyperbole out of this. Like, let's really look at, you know, and here's the problem too. Our diets suck now, right? Anyone, you know, people are like, well, you need to eat a balanced diet. That's my favorite one you hear. You see it in the news stories right around New Year's Eve is, uh, you know, <laughs> I want to I wanna, I wanna lose weight in the new year. Yeah. I'm thinking of taking this supplement. And the first line of the study is, you can get all the nutrition you need from food. It's like, who, who, please find me that one American who's doing that right now. Point them out to me. Well, let's not even start with the idea that if you look at the nutritional value of the food now, than in whenever it was 1950, whatever, the amount of, you know, sugar or vitamins in like an orange or the amount of magnesium in the soil has been depleted, which yes. is probably why most of us are magnesium deficient. No, it's, it's an excellent point. I think these are the sorts of things where, you know, this is something that, and it, part of our routine spiel is, look, 
get that stuff checked. When you go see your doctor, get blood work, like make sure you're getting that stuff checked and get a multi or something that fits those needs because you're seeing more and more to your point. Like, I don't think a few years ago, you know, it's funny. Innovation kind of comes full circle too, because a few years ago, no one was talking about the importance of magnesium and zinc. And now it's like, oh, wow, all these adverse health outcomes because of just deficiencies in magnesium and zinc are like in your face all the time. And it's like, hey, we got to be brilliant on the basics, guys. Um, so it, it's no, it's a good message. And it's one that we carry too, is it's like, look, and I think that's what most Americans look to the industry for is they go, hey, I'm not going to get these from my diet. I need to fill these in somehow. I think that that's a really, really good point because, yeah. I, you know, we can and I often talk about on the show that uh, natural foods and what have you are the best foundation. And if you go back, you know, uh, several decades, maybe 100 years, whatever it is, food was probably plenty good. The issue now is that there's so many other assaults upon your health whether it's, it doesn't really matter which one it is. It could be a collective thing of uh, EMF or, or radio frequency, or it could be the fact that you live close to some type of power plant. It doesn't really matter what, or microplastics, which are basically in everything, or the fact that there's um, uh, fertilizer and, and water. It doesn't matter which one you feel like is the trigger. The fact is that food alone, number one, isn't nearly as nutrient dense as it once was, like uh, Ken was pointing out with magnesium, et cetera. And there are just more assaults that people endured day to day in in uh, you know in, in modern life but that being the case what who would you say on behalf of NPA are some of the sources that consumers should begin to check with if they can't find out or do y'all have do y'all have some that y'all would ever send somebody to they want to find out some information on supplements that y'all represent I mean, we, you know, obviously I'm biased. I'm going to say go to npanational.org and look at our stuff, follow our stuff on social media. I think there's a lot of good information. Now, a lot of that is specific to some of the battles with the government. But I think I think first and foremost is look to companies like, um, you know, now's a brand that's been around as long as NPA. Uh, look to companies like that that have a story, that belong to parts of the industry. Um and ask them why. That's the biggest thing right now. This is the information age. I think you, the, your ability to get in touch and, and get to somebody who actually makes decisions at a company at, at a pro, you know, hey, why, why, why is your, you know, I, I noticed that multivitamins have, you know, this particular level of magnesium. Yours is different. Why? Like those are the sorts of things that I think really that's the advantage of the world we live in now is having that ability to contact and talking to those people. I tell people all the time, my favorite is. Um, you know, anytime we talk to the mainstream media and they go, your industry does no research. I go to clinicaltrials.gov and I type in dietary supplements. And literally, I think it's the count is over 60,000 clinical studies on there right now. And you go, you don't need to say anything else. So I think that's the important thing, too, is arm people with just those bits. It's like, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm feeling sluggish. I'm not I don't have the energy I used to or, you know, I, I I'm, you know, I'm sore after workouts. That information's out there. Those studies are out there. Uh, start there, uh, you know. And the information is, is easier than ever to get. And, and listen to, you know, listen to uh, listen to you guys. Of course. I mean, come on. How can I not say that? But but I think that's important. I think the folks that are willing to really engage, it's not easy, you know. And Ken, especially as an MD, I'm sure you know you, you had prior lashes across your back. Is now it's it's much. Uh, I don't know if cooler is the right word, but it's much more accepted to be into you know natural products, whereas. Before it wasn't easy, and I think the fact that you know you obviously took a great deal of time to educate yourself and know what was going on, 
those are the people people need to seek out is seek out those, you know, seek out those practitioners who actually have sought that knowledge base. Um, and, and you guys are proof that they're out there. It's interesting because when you said that, uh, when you talk to certain agencies or people or whatever, and they say, well, there's no research on it and you pull it up. That was the thing that I run into all the time. And this is no, this is not a slam on my colleagues or anything because everybody in medicine is just required to do so much so fast at this time that when, when I would go meet with somebody and be like, hey, you know, we're launching this product. It's a natural product. Da, 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 da. Well, there's no research on it. Actually, there is research here. It is. And, oh, well, it's not studied enough or whatever. Um, what they're saying when they say there's no research on this is a drug rep has not come in and brought lunch to me and detailed me because, unfortunately, a lot of doctors now, especially in primary care, seeing patients every eight minutes. And the, old, you know, the education they're getting is from the person that can get five minutes in front of them or 10 minutes during lunch and explain to them why this particular antidepressant is the one that they need to start using on the regular. So. No, it makes great sense. And I think, you know, it's funny. I was listening to some, uh, it was some podcast on, on, the, uh, on the way in and they were talking about working on the business instead of in the business. Right. And I think that's a part of it, right. Is, is I think you're right. MDs have so much to focus on. Sometimes it's just survival mode where, it takes a little extra effort to, to learn this stuff, but I think, you know, your proof, it, it's worth it. Uh, it's worth it. And just the engagement you have with, you know, with your patients is gotta be, I mean, that's the other part of it, right? Is so much of it is really community based. Uh, so much of it is we're also individualistic now. It, it's really, it's important to have some alignment and even, not that you agree on everything, but have some alignment and knowing they have somewhere to go. Uh, to discuss these things because everybody's interested. I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be in the news as frequently as it is. It wouldn't be the subject of political campaigns. Uh, people, you know, people are fascinated by their health and what they can do, you know, what they can do personally for their health. Uh, self-care is here to stay. Um, and, and anyone who thinks otherwise is, hasn't been paying attention to, to humans for very long. You know, now that we have the social media where everybody, I mean, it's just people can just connect like that. And there's so much of this going on in social media, self-help, nutrition, diet. In fact, it seems to be like a, like that, that's a point where people will get in big arguments about the diet and everything, but that's kind of irrelevant. What's just wild is, is that I've gotten to the point that if a patient shows up and says, Hey, I heard a podcast, um, somebody on this Facebook said this, does this do this? And I'm like, wow, don't know, but I'm not going to dismiss it because maybe. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I just have, I don't have the bandwidth to look at everything. So, right. But, but at least you're willing, I mean, that's the great thing is you're willing to say, look, I know what I know. I also know what I don't know. And I think that that's, that's kind of the challenge, whether it's FDA or some of the, the mainstream medical establishment, it's like, no, we know everything. Our word is fiat. And it's like, yeah, I, I don't think um, people look to FDA on the food or dietary supplement side to be the, the keepers of innovation. Now, granted, there are rules to the road and products have to be safe at the same time. We, we've, you know, people are going to innovate one way or the other. Um, and so better to be, you know, better to be working with them. There's lots of, of uh, pharmacology instruction in med school and in nursing school. And then you have, uh, you know, RDs going through formal training to become a dietitian. What about penetrating the educational realm to better educate people while they're they're doing the didactic learning so that they aren't it's not so foreign because you're exactly right it feels like talking to someone who's already gone through any one of those levels of training about probably less with dietitians but about you know the importance of supplementation and healthy food it's you're you're conditioned to almost always turn to pharma first 
and yeah, and then everything else. How how can how can we change that? Well, I mean, there are some features in place that are great. One of the key things that the Shea was actually created the Office of Dietary Supplements out at NIH, and, and they've done some good things over the years. Um, I actually, you know, I'm on faculty at Illinois. I teach at Georgetown too in that coursework um, in their you know complementary alternative medicine program, which is great. But but to your point, it's it's not enough, right? It's just not enough. So I think we've got to pump up the volume on that. That there is more, there is more interaction. Um, to educate. Uh, we certainly do our part here at NPA, but, but I, again, I think, and I think part of it's transitioning too. I think, I think you're seeing some of that old guard kind of, if you look, you know, this is what gives me hope, if you will, and, and we all have to have some hope, right. Uh, but going from 1994 to now, I think we've seen, uh, you know, it's a lot better than it was. And that's not to, you know, that's, that's always the, the gaslighting. Oh no, it's better than it was. Right. Like, no, no, but, uh, <laughs> It, it, it is moving in the right direction. I think we do have to do things to accelerate it um, and really put, I think the next step is really put some of that old guard on notice. Like, Hey, look, you can have a different opinion, but understand like that needs to be out there. Like it needs to be out there. You have a different opinion. You're taking this position for Lord knows what reason, but you kind of, you kind of need to start telling people why, why are you taking this opinion? Uh, because the notion that the industry, you know, you always hear, the industry is not regulated. The industry is not safe. And it's like, okay, show us, show us those data points because right. they're not real, you know? And, and I think that that's where some of the engagement needs to start to happen. It's just like, look, we're not going to sit around and just take the abuse anymore. We're going to go on the offensive and we need to start getting the stories out too, um, that, Hey, people have really benefited in a great, great way. Um, you know, going back full circle to kind of the vitamin D issue. It's like, we need to start going, look, um, this is important. This is really important. People who aren't getting enough vitamin D are creating billions of dollars of healthcare costs a year. Uh, this can be fixed like that. Let's, you know, let it through. And one of the things we're working on is actually to get supplements covered under HSAs and FSAs, right? Nice. Because it's like, yeah, you know, because that why shouldn't they be able to to you know uh, can to go to you know to go to your practice and say, hey, uh, I need to buy supplements and I've got an HSA. I'll, I'll put it on there, right? Yeah, why not? That'd be uh, great have the choice. Um, so things like that we can do, but yeah, definitely got to do more. And that's maybe something we can talk further about is kind of what are some of the ways to get people engaged, but coming to DC is a key thing. We have our flying day. Hope to see you guys there next year. Uh, we had it this year when the weather wasn't so damn cold here in DC, it was back in May, uh, June, probably do it May, June next year, but it's important to get in front of your members of Congress and go, look, this is important. Um, you know, your guys' stories like, Hey, um, we're practicing medicine and we need more. We need others who practice medicine to have access to the same information or at least seek it out as part of their credentialing. Totally agree. So, yeah. you, you've even got elements of big tech that kind of squash stuff. You could look up uh, one of the most published uh, physicians ever is Paul Merrick, and he's got lots of information on vitamin C. But if you were to Google that kind of stuff, the first several results are going to be to more or less kind of discredit what it is he's worked yeah. on, which is ridiculous. Yeah. No, me, there's a lot of it. Get Congress involved for sure. Get your local officials involved. One, I'm going to do a quick uh, sidebar here. One of you know, you brought up Ozempic, which is semaglutide, which is a peptide. Where yeah. it, where does the NPA stand in this sort of evolving gray area of peptides? I mean, peptide. There are peptides that are part of the diet. There are peptides that aren't. I mean, injecting peptides is a different story, right? You're talking about you know signaling function, everything else. So that's not really necessarily our bailiwick. We don't we don't though think that 
you know, I, I noticed that recently on some of the compounding pharmacy, uh, they completely stripped the use of peptides, right? Which obviously is for commercial interest, similar to what we're experiencing in the supplement industry, right? It's like, well, no, 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 you can't use those as a compounding pharmacy because those are going to be branded drugs at some point. That's problematic, right? Um, so, and it's it's different different route of administration, but same same theme that we're dealing with. So, in that regard, you know, we, we want to see people have as long as it's safe and folks are within their you know their scope of practice. You know, we we, we fully support people having that availability. Uh, what is going to get interesting though, because I think it's going to come full circle. There are going to be at some point non injected peptides. There are going to be orally available peptides. And someone's going to try to make them as a drug or file an IND. I mean, think about it. Here's, here's our doomsday scenario, Ken, is with AI right now, I could probably map every orally available, orally ingested peptide that man's ever consumed, and I could file an IND Oof. and keep everything out, right? I mean, that could, don't get any ideas, people out there, but that could happen right now. I mean, somebody could use AI to do that, to map that space and go, basically kick that space out of being used as a food or supplement forever. Wow. Just by that alone. Right. So that's where our concern comes in primarily is someone could do that. Um, and that's not, you know, look, some, some of the peptides should probably be orally available. It should be part of food. It could fit into the medical food space. They could fit in the supplement space. Um, you know, if we find a peptide that helps with occasional sleeplessness, um, is that a drug or is that, you know, a supplement, right? I would think that leans more towards a supplement lane, but um, you know, something, a scenario like I described could completely stifle any innovation in that regard. Wow. So Dr. Dan Fabricant, I know that you have a meeting here in about 10 to 15 minutes. And, uh, first I wanted to say, number one, thank you so much for making time with us today. I can't wait to have you back when you come down to Dallas. Uh, yes, sir. the, the second thing, tell us what that meeting is going to be about. And then when you sign off or as you have to part, let everybody know how they can connect with, uh, NPA. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so New York State. Um, so one of these bills, um, they've been making their way through the coastal states. We kind of talked about a little bit um, that dietary supplements are leading to eating disorders. Now, we first heard that back in 2016, and, and it was out of a, out of Massachusetts, out of Harvard. And everyone's always impressed with Harvard, but I went there post-grad. So you know <laughs> <laughs> um, but um they have this supposition that supplements are, you know, leading to body dysmorphia and thus eating disorders. And we're like, this sounds, this is completely not credible. Um, but so we, you know, we want to put our money where our mouth is. And we've looked at all the adverse events. We foiled all the adverse events at FDA on eating disorders, both with supplements and drugs. Not a single one on dietary supplements with any sort of causation or even association. From 2019 to 2022, there wasn't a single one. So you go, Wait a second. So it's this political message. It's this, you know, supplements are, are the cause of all these problems. It, it's nonsense. But you go to the state houses and you testify and the eating disorder group at Harvard, they show up with a kid who's had an eating disorder. Now, they don't mention that they were a ballerina, and were, you know, doing all sorts of other things to lose weight because the ballerina mistress from, you know, the deepest, darkest parts of Russia probably beat them with a switch. <laughs> That's not right there. But um, so, but, you know, you can't you can't say anything bad about the, the girl with eating disorders because, you know, that you look like a horrible person, which not the first time I've been called that won't be the last. But long story short, uh, New York introduced this in last session. We actually got it vetoed. And the, it, ironically, the governor of New York, the, and she was the new governor at the time because she got Cuomo out, said, hey, we really don't have the expertise to do this. So we're going to veto it and kill it. Well, this go around, it got through. 
Um, and so what this does effectively is uh, GNC, Vitamin Shop, which are members of ours, we're not sure yet of the implementation. We're not sure if they're going to put products behind the counter, uh, require an ID check. We're not sure exactly what products are covered. It was written so broadly. Uh, it was anything dealing with weight management, including fat metabolism, well, health. B12 deals with fat. Yeah, no kidding. Energy metabolism, right? Simple. So, you know, or muscle building. Well, vitamin D builds skeletal muscle. So we don't know what's covered. It's completely nebulous. Uh, and so we're, we're working with our members to really try to get a foothold on what's going to be covered, what's not going to be covered, what's going to be implemented, how. We don't really see where it's enforceable, but our concern is it gets enforced by our favorite people, once again, the plaintiff's attorneys, where they walk into a store, they ask for a product, they see that the product claims to help with, you know, skeletal muscle, and then they sue, you know, they have 19,000 counts because there's X number of stores and X number of products. So it, it's, it's really bad. It's really an industry killer. Um, it, it's unfortunate because I think one of the ways consumers educate themselves is to go into stores and checking out a product and, and yeah. you know, having something, you know, we still learn tactically, you know, you got to sometimes touch something and see something in front of your face. So it, it's a problem. Uh, we'll see what we can do to, to create some sort of solution or resolve. But this is happening more and more frequently. And this is why, you know, to your point, Eric, I'll, I'll be uh, um, unscrupulous here for a second and plug us. Uh, but go to npanational.org. And like on this issue, uh, there's a button at the top of our website. It says take action. People can click on that. It takes 30 seconds. And there's a myriad of issues, everything from this issue on products being put behind the counter, ID check, to supporting the FSA, HSA piece. Uh, it'll send email to their elected officials and say, hey, you know what? We're supportive of the industry. We want to see our access maintained. We don't want to see our prices go up. Uh, we want to have a choice when it comes to you know, our self-care. And so it takes 30 seconds. They can modify the message. Uh, but it's, it's a great way to, for people to kind of people always ask, what can I do? Here you go. Here, here's the, you know, the, the easy way to get started. There's other ways coming to our fly in, um, you know, but that, that's one of the simplest is, is send a letter, um, you know, let people know that, hey, we're out there. We vote. And this is important to us. Excellent. Yeah. Well, this is uh, I, I loved it. We could literally talk for hours. I mean, there's so many other things that I wanted to cover, but I'm so impressed with your scientific background and how easily you transitioned and how well you're doing managing the whole political side. And I want to thank you for everything that you're doing and still being able to lecture. You are definitely hustling out there. So appreciate everything that you and the MPA does. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate what you guys do too. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll cover those other topics next time, you know? Lots to talk about. Definitely, definitely. Well, everyone, thank y'all so much for joining us on the Gut Check Project here with Dr. Dan Fabricant. Be sure and check out npanational.org. All links will be in the show notes. We will see y'all next time. Take care. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.